church order, our church order reads, Article 45, that consistory shall supervise the Lord's table. You know I'm reformed. I've got a church order in the pulpit. <laughs> I'm reading from the church order. It doesn't get more reformed than that. And our church order of the United Reformed Church says, Article 45, visitors to our church may be admitted to the supper as much that as much, provided that as much as possible the consistory is assured of the biblical church membership of the proper profession of faith and their godly walk. Now, hearing that, you recall David fled Israel and sought comfort in the arms of her enemy. David was an unfaithful and unfaithful member of the church. He was living in sin, so much so that he sought to fight against Israel. He wanted to fight against Yahweh. The Lord delivered David. The Lord delivered at, Achish, at Ziklag. David cried out to the Lord. So we've seen David turn to the Lord, but David in our text this morning is still living with the Philistines. He's still with the Philistines. And so there's a question the text is begging, and that question is, where do David's loyalties lie? Who or whom is David a servant of? Who will he serve? And that's the question chapter 1 really wants to answer for us this morning. Who does David serve? Was David welcome to the table of the Lord? And so 2 Samuel begins with the story of David hearing about the death of Saul, the death of Jonathan, and the loss of Israel. And David's response confirms to the reader. David's response confirms to us that he was a faithful Israelite son. In this one chapter, he mourns for God's people. And he judges for God's people. And he executes justice for God's people. He was coming home. He's turning from sin and turning to the Lord. So this text is really about Kingdom living, living in light of the kingdom of God. This is a sanctification text. Now, we saw in the end of 1 Samuel a lot of sin. And I think we saw a lot of ourselves. I think we're supposed to see a lot of ourselves at the end of 1 Samuel. That grievous sin, falling from the Lord, sinning against the Lord. That's how we should see ourselves. We live, Romans 7, in flesh. We live sold under sin. And so we need 2 Samuel chapter 1. We need to see in our lives a turning from that sin. We need to see in ourselves turning from sin, turning to Christ, turning to his church. We must see that repentance in our own lives. It's the Christian life. The Christian life is one of guilt, guilt and grace. You see, we live sin, misery, and then Romans 5, where sin increased, Paul says, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your grace, gratitude. 
So this is a kingdom living text, a text on sanctification, a sanctification text. So this morning I want to draw some sanctified principles taken from the life and the story of 2 Samuel 7 that we might live these principles in our own lives. And so from this text, I want to give you some kingdom principles, kingdom principles that help us live better lives, to live Romans 12. Paul says Romans 12 commands the church, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, perfect. And so the first principle for sanctified living that we get from this text, the first principle I'm drawing from this text for sanctified living is hate. The kingdom of heaven is paved with hatred. I got your attention. Good. (laughs) We must hate our sins. Verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. So Saul, we know, was condemned. The death of Saul. Saul was condemned by the Lord, promised death. Saul died because he was condemned. And the Amalekites died because they were condemned. 1 Samuel 15, you remember, go back all those chapters ago. 1 Samuel 15, 3, Samuel commands Saul, he commands Israel, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child, infant, there's some hard words, right? Ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Everything was devoted to destruction. Now some call this ethnic cleansing. This is not ethnic cleansing, Christian. This is sin cleansing. Amalek opposed God's people, and so God opposed Amalek. You see, God hates sin. The psalmist says his soul hates it every day. And not sin, he says, my soul hates the sinner every day. We need to learn to hate sin. Because we live, Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 21 says, So I find it to be a law. Paul writes, there's a law. There's a law for the Christian life that when I want to do right, I want to do right. But evil lies close at hand. Paul says, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my mouth, my tongue, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. You see, we hate our sin because we learn in the confession. We learn in the confession, the sin we hate leads to the confession, wretched man that I am. And when we confess that wretchedness, we find hopelessness in ourselves. And so we need another. 
We need someone else. We need someone to deliver us from this body of death. And that is our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from all our sins. And so we don't look to our own merit. We don't look to our own righteousness. No, we look to the grace, the saving work of Christ. You see, our works are wretchedness. We don't look to ourselves. We're wretched. We look to Christ, Savior, Deliverer, whose works save our bodies whose works save our soul, whose work saves us body and soul in life and in death. You see, the kingdom of heaven is paved with Christ's merit. We must learn to walk that path alone, the path of Christ where his grace is sufficient. Sanctified living hates sin because we need a savior. Verse 1 continues, David remained two days in Ziklag. So David is still in Ziklag. So he's still with the Philistines. But David turned to the Lord, the Lord provided grace, and David responded with obedience. Yet, as far as anyone knows, in Ziklag, David was still a Philippian, excuse me, Philistine sympathizer. He still, he still appears to be a, a Philistine sympathizer. That's really important. We don't really know. We still see him, you know, we still see him there. And it says, on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. Now, the third day, they, if you remember it correctly, they've returned to Ziklag, and the Amalekites devoted to destruction all of Ziklag, right? And so they're no doubt putting their affairs back into order. When they see this man, the text says, with clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now, the, the tearing of clothing and the dirt on the head, that it was a customary, that was a customary sign of grief. And so seeing this man coming with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, David knows something's wrong. David knows there's war. David knows there's tragedy. Something tragic has happened. Someone has, su someone has suffered loss, but David doesn't know. And the, and the text is wanting to show us something in this. Where do David's loyalties lie? If the servant, if this messenger comes and says, Akish lost, would David celebrate? Or would David mourn? Was David welcome to the table of the Lord? Who was David for? And when he came to David, it says, he fell on the ground and paid homage. Falling on the ground and paying this homage implies that he is seeing David as king. So maybe David now knows who suffered the tragedy. He's assuming David is now king. And he's hoping, I believe, for a reward with the information, the good news that he has. David said to him, where did you come from? Verse 3. Who are you? He says, I escaped from the Philistines. I escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, the Israel at this time was the camps of Israel belonged to the Philistines. And who is this man? I mean, we're trying to figure out David now. There's an irony here. We're trying to figure out which side David is on, and now we got this man, and we got to figure out who this man is. And, and David doesn't know. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And just like a news reporter, he, he buries the lead here. He answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And then the news, the lead, Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. This is sensational, 
This is terrible news. But it could be fake news. It could be fake. So David, verse 5, said to the young man who told him, how do you know? How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? David wanted verification, and the messenger replied with an eyewitness account, verse 6. And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And I looked behind me, and I saw, and he called to me. So there's his eyewitness. He he says, I saw him. Not only did I see him, I spoke to him, and, and I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. So he saw him, he spoke to him, and he said, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind, beside him and killed him. He spoke to him, or he saw him, he spoke to him, he killed him. That's evidence. Because I was sure he wouldn't live, he had fallen. And then his fourth evidence he took the signs of his kingship, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. And so this evidence sounds credible. We know that Saul and his spear were always inseparable. We, we, we've read and we've been studying Saul and looking at Saul in 1 Samuel. Saul was never without a spear. He always had a spear with him. And the encroaching army of chariots and horsemen was believable, given the fact that just a couple of chapters earlier, David was marching behind these chariots and these horsemen when he was sent back by the, arm, by the generals to Ziklag. But something doesn't add up. We have already seen Saul die. We've already seen Saul commit suicide. We, we saw him pierce himself, thrust himself on his own sword. And we saw his armor bearer do the same. The armor bearer would not have committed suicide if he hadn't saw his master. And the text in chapter, the last chapter in 1 Samuel, the text is very clear. It says they both died. The Amalekite was lying. He was an opportunistic thief who robbed the battlefield and before the Philistines found Saul. He found Saul. It was customary in the ancient world for thieves to do this, by the way. It was customary for people to go in and rob these ancient battlefields. There's a lot of goods and spoils to be had. And by accident, he stumbled upon the king. And he thought to himself, gold mine. Who would reward me richly? Who should I give the crown of Israel to? Who should I give this armlet to? Who's the next in line? Who wants the kingdom? Who will reward me for bearing the good news? And one man came to his mind, that Philistine sympathizer who Saul feared. I'll go to David. And I think he's assuming in this text that David is as corrupt as Saul, that David would take by chance the kingdom. Now, critical scholars see discrepancy in this text. And I don't want to say too much about critical scholarship, be a whole sermon in itself. 
I don't have time to get into the critical theories. They basically say there are two stories here, two stories that don't add up, two different traditions that don't add up. One, David, excuse me, one Saul killed himself, one Amalekite killed himself. I can't say much about it, but I do need to say one thing. Critical scholars are just as shameful as this Amalekite was. You see, history doesn't give us two stories. There, there actually isn't two stories. The science is one text, one book, and we have to be honest with the one book. We don't try to peer behind it to see something that's not there. You see, critical theorists, they don't trust the text. They trust make-believe. They've made it up. If you handle the text correctly, you can see clearly what's happening. Not two histories, one history, one story. And critical theorists want us to trust, not the Bible, they want us to trust themselves. It's not science, it's not honest, their only evidence is their creativity, and it's a great reward for their ego if you follow them. And so here's sanctified living principle two, hate sin, and here's the second one, which I find from the margins of this text, trust God's word alone. Your sanctification needs God's word alone. Sanctification needs no other knowledge. Sanctification forsakes forsakes worldly wisdom. It runs from self-help gurus. And really, politics doesn't help here either. Politics can actually hurt sanctification. You you watch politics too much, you read it too much, you be that confession, oh wretched man, you begin not to direct it towards yourself. Sanctification needs the church preaching the, preaching the full counsel of the word because God knows all things and God never lies and his word is inspired. It comes from God. Therefore, it's without error. You can trust it and it is that which leads us in righteousness. One commentator wrote, when you got a choice to trust God's word or an Amalekite, you trust God's word. He says, I've never met an Amalekite, I would add, or a critical theorist I could trust. The word alone is sufficient to lead us in our godliness, and it's the king's word. That's sanctified principle two, hate your sin, trust God's word. Look to your savior, verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. Again, a common form of mourning, as so did all the men who were with him. And then it says, the men mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. David mourned for Yahweh's people. David fasted for the house of Israel. Which David is this? Where does David belong? Where are his loyalties? Whom would he serve? He's a faithful son of Israel. David was no longer a deserter to the Philistines. He belonged to the people of God. This was a man after God's own heart, so he grieved over the death of his people. He mourned. He mourned for the church. Here's our third principle. It is our faith to mourn unbelief and error. It is our faith to mourn unbelief and error, and there is a lot to mourn over today. The church today is filled with unbelief. The church today is filled with unbelief, apostasy, and heresy. And that's only in the pulpits. And sanctified living grieves over the lack of concern for orthodoxy in the church today. You see, I see in most of evangelicalism, paganism. The same darkness that affected the church through the Reformation 
It's the same darkness that's plaguing us today. We need reformation. And reformation seeks sound doctrine. Sanctified living needs orthodoxy, needs soundness of doctrine. You want to live a sound life, you need sound doctrine. You want sound practices, you need truth, orthodoxy. You want right living, you need right teaching. And we should hate the sin that plagues the church and therefore plagues the Christian life. And this grief should cause us to fall on our knees in prayer. That's another point of sanctified kingdom living. We need to trust God's word, but we need to trust prayer. The kingdom of God needs you praying. Church needs you to pray for her ministers. The church needs you to pray for her elders, her deacons. And if only there was a weekly prayer list by which we could pray for all the needs of the church, how awesome would that be? And consistory assumes you're praying. Make our assumptions right. Pray for your church. Pray for the church. And also grieve with the persecuted church. Pray for the persecuted. That's kingdom living. Verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. So David heard the message, but now he wanted to verify the messenger. And what you should see in verse 13 and following is a courtroom setting. He's wanting to find out who this man is. Now, sojourners, he's, he's claiming to be a sojourner. I am a sojourner. Sojourners, according to Torah, deserved all the rights and blessings as the Israelites. They were to be considered Residents, alien residents, but residents nonetheless. But I don't believe this man was a resident because the evidence proves that he didn't know David, he didn't know Israel. And David picks up on this. He said, I'm a son of a sojourner. And David says, oh, you're one of us, then you know. And so David said to him, verse 14, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Everyone in Israel knew the status of sanctity David held for Yahweh's anointed. David had a sacred respect for the Lord's anointed. And Torah commanded this respect. If he was a sojourner, he would have known Now, we might miss this respect, but if I translate it literally, perhaps it might help you understand to see why David was so, so burdened by this anointing. It literally translates in the Hebrew, Yahweh's Messiah. Yahweh's Messiah. So it could be translated literally, you have testified that you killed Yahweh's Messiah. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of this text, says, you have testified that you killed Adonai's Christ. You have killed the Lord's Christ. 
Now do you see why David was so burdened? You see, Saul was set apart and anointed by God, and David sought to honor what belonged to Yahweh. And sanctified living hates profanity. Sanctified living hates the profane, and it honors what belongs to God. Therefore, sanctified living wants to give God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So sanctified living has a a fear built into it. There is fear in sanctification. You see, we serve and we worship a terrifyingly awesome God. And this man professed profanity. I killed Adonai's Christ. He killed the Lord's anointed. He profaned the Lord's grace. He made unholy the holy, and therefore deserved death. And David said, verse 15, he called one of the young men and said to him, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is judgment, and David exercises judgment. And Christian, this is the judgment that belongs to us all. We have all killed Adonai's Christ. The sin that bore Christ to the cross, we nailed him there. And we will all face the judgment of this terrifyingly awesome God that is apart from Christ, those apart from Christ. You see, you need the blood of Christ. It's anointed. The blood of Christ is that anointed blood of God that washes away all our sins. And Jesus is Yahweh's Messiah, the perfect son of Israel. Jesus mourned for the people of God. He fasted for Yahweh's people. He judged profanity when he struck out the temple and drove out the profane and cleansed God's place. And without Christ, you are left alone in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Don't profane the gospel with unbelief. You are hearing it today. Do not profane the message with unbelief. Don't profane this place and this worship with your unbelief or your blood will be on your own head. But by faith in Christ, the blood makes you clean. And by the blood of Christ, we we live Romans 8, no more condemnation. By the blood of Christ, no more condemnation, no more wrath, no separation. And in this faith, you must now protect the Lord's anointed. In the faith that you profess, you must now protect the Lord's anointed. And Christian, you are the Lord's anointed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you are the Lord's anointed. So don't profane your life with sin, but hate it, forsake it, turn from it. Fear God. 
You see, fear preserves our sanctification, and a godly fear should control us. A godly fear keeps us holy. A godly fear causes us to serve God, but it is a fear grounded in love. For if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Fear God, trust the Lord, and live that Romans 5, 1 life. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is kingdom living, Christian. Hate your sin. Trust God's word. Look to Christ. Fear God. Trust Christ. And the answer to the question, yes, we would commune 2 Samuel 1, David. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.